we've lost touch a lot with the natural world and where we fit and how we fit. Your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Well, hello, this is Catherine, your host of the podcast, Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievements. Exceptional people rise to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. Check out his music and learn so much more about his pretty rad, awesome background. ChrisKnoll.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out my YouTube channel, Your Positive Imprint, and my website, YourPositiveImprint.com, where, of course, you can sign up for email updates to learn more about the podcast, as well as listen to the podcast, or, of course, listen from any podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, any, or just your favorite podcast platform. Your Positive Imprint, what's your P.I.? Nature for me is my perfect place to be at any time. The sounds are peaceful, they're tranquil. I love the sound of water, the rivers, the streams, even the lakes and the little ripples. I love the birds, the sights, the wildlife. It's just gorgeous. My parents raised my siblings and me pretty much in the wilderness, and that's where my husband and my dog spend our time. Well, today's guest lives life in nature. Amy Griesack is an author for guided books, guided hikes, and other books for the Yellowstone, Waterton Lakes, and Glacier National Parks areas. Her upbringing did not include hiking or camping. I wasn't raised by a nature-loving family so much, but I still gravitated naturally. I grew up in northeastern Ohio, which is, was decreasing a bit, was farmland. And so we had some space to roam. And so growing up, I was always finding myself back in the woods and playing in the creek and looking for nuts and berries and wild foods and and always playing back there. Amy frequented the local library to read about the flowers, the birds, and the wildlife. The pictures and words mesmerized her, and she knew she wanted to live as close to nature as possible. Mother Nature was indeed calling Amy. Sometimes you're just not born in the right place. And so as soon as I could after high school, did a short stint at Ohio State University and then moved out to Montana. I knew I needed to be out west where there were more cows than people. We are in the west and not quite to the Pacific Northwest. So you have Washington on the west coast, a little bit of sliver of Idaho, and then we have Montana, and we border the Canadian border, too. In Great Falls, Montana, we are about an hour and a half from the Canadian border. I want to go into nature, and a fabulous quote from Edward Abbey. Basically, he says, the love of wilderness is more than a hunger for what is always beyond reach. It is also an expression of loyalty to the earth, which bore us and sustains us. Let's start from there about the, the hunger for what is always beyond reach. Yeah, when I read that, it just it struck a chord, of course, with me, because it's true. 
When you are out in nature, at least I find myself that you follow these trails and it's hard to stop sometimes because you just want to keep going. A couple of weeks ago, we did a trail up to what's called Headquarters Pass and just a short three and a half miles, one way, moderate elevation gain, mountain goats along the way. But you get to the top of the pass and the others with me, they're like, well, where does this go? It goes anywhere you want. There's a million and a half acres of the Bob Marshall wilderness in front of us. And you could just follow the trail and go. It's a calling. It's tough. When I first came over Headquarters Pass, gosh, about 20 years ago, I had spent over a week in the Bob with an outfitter. I was photographing the whole trip for him. And we started on the West End corner side of the Bob Marshall and rode over a hundred miles during the time back there. And we came out over Headquarters Pass. And I just remember, you know, even after all that time back in the wilderness and no bath outside of jumping in the White River and going down the riffles, roughing it, even though it wasn't roughing it at all, standing on the top of the pass and going, I don't want to leave. <laughs> oh, I didn't want to go. And oh, so, yeah, that's, that's wilderness. It is wilderness. It can be treacherous, but oh, yeah. ever so tranquil in, in Mother Nature's own way. Do you author books on hiking trails in Montana. I did actually a nature guide to the different plants and animals in Glacier National Park and Waterton National Park. Falcon is the one who published it. There's so many people who hike the trails and they love the splendor of Glacier, but they really don't understand what they're looking at. Why is that rock red? Or what is that little squirrel? Is it a chipmunk? A squirrel? You know, they don't know what it is. And I firmly believe that when people understand what they're looking at, whether it's a, a butterfly or a flower, that they love it that much more. It was so much fun to photograph. I did most of the photos. We didn't do everything because we only had about 11 months to pull the book together. But to photograph it and research everything, it was a blast. I agree with you with the understanding of Mother Nature, that understanding might even include preservation and conservation. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so let's talk about the kinds of information people need to have when they enter Glacier National Park or Waterton Lakes National Park or really any wilderness or natural environment. I think an appreciation for what the environment is. One thing we always like to stress is no matter how beautiful it is, you have to respect it. Because whether it's the weather that can change, it can start out a beautiful 80 degree day and snow by the end of it. You have to be prepared there. And then to understand the wild residents, to understand the wildlife and the behavior. In this book, you talk a lot about the wildlife, of course, and you talk a lot about the flowers. How, what kind of values do people have to have when they're out? enjoying the wildflowers and the vegetation in these parks or wherever they're at in nature. Well, I totally understand people going gaga over the wildflowers. I mean, they are just absolutely spectacular in the park in Glacier and Waterton. And there's so many areas where it's just, it seems endless where you'll have entire meadows filled with flowers. But I always wanted to stress to people that 
we need to leave them there. Don't pick the wildflowers, as tempting as it might be. We have so many people visiting Glacier in particular now. It's well over 3 million and just increasing every year. That if even a fraction of those people picked wildflowers, that is fewer flowers that will go to seed to reproduce, and then also fewer flowers for all our insects. And of course, the insects feed the birds and the birds help pollinate and you know spread pines and the whole chain there. So picking one flower can really have an impact that we, that we don't want to have. So we want to remember to leave positive imprints and footprints and nothing else. That's a good point and very important. And people also need to keep in mind that, you know, so many people who visit Glacier, they're out for maybe a week or two and they don't understand how short our season is. So everything is basically trying to make their living in a very short amount of time. And so every flower really is a precious resource. You have to respect it. Everything is connected. Of course, people are terrified and fascinated with grizzlies all at the same time. So many people want to see a grizzly. They want to, of course, see a grizzly at a distance type thing. But it helps, I think, when they understand how, I don't want to say how bears think, but kind, kind of how bears think. You know, what, what is their motivation and that type of thing. So you can enjoy this piece of wilderness, being safe yourself, and then keeping them safe. Because if we screw up, the bears often suffer from it. One of those policies that the national parks and national forests have mm-hmm. with regard to wildlife, if wildlife attacks a human, even though it's the human's fault, like leaving food in the tent mm-hmm. uh, or, uh, or whatever the case might be, or traumatizing an animal by, by throwing things at it or, or teasing it and provoking it. So I'm always saddened when animals are removed from Mother Nature, from their home, mm-hmm. and, and euthanized. I used to work for National Geographic Television. The very first program we did was on bear attacks. And it was looking at different scenarios and basically what the people did wrong. <laughs> I mean, truthfully. And so it, it was eye-opening because for the most part, the bears are incredibly tolerant. People don't read these books. They think that they are infallible. How do you instill this? Because people aren't going to generally go pick up a book to read before they go out. How can we get the information to them? Because we do have bear attacks because Mm -hmm. people don't understand. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the background to protect themselves, to protect the bear in the right way so that the bear doesn't attack. So how do you instill that before someone goes hiking? It's tough. And the one thing that I'm finding in Glacier is having those one-on-one conversations, which is a very small drop in the bucket. But I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people on the trail who are starting a trail and letting them know you are not prepared for this. Even last weekend, a friend and I were hiking up to a lookout in Glacier and beautiful fall day. I mean, but it was chilly. And this is a 12-mile round-trip hike. And when we were coming out, so, oh, a mile or so from the beginning, there was an older couple. And they were hiking up, and she asked, well, how far is it? We tried to explain to them, you have five miles. And they had no pack, no water. And we told them that. 
you have nothing, don't hike up there. Because you can get, and it's, you don't have to go far sometimes to really get into trouble. And so telling people you are not prepared for this, do not do that. And I've even had people who we struck up a conversation on the trail and they had bear spray, but they didn't know how to use it. And they still had on the little safety oh, tab. No. And I said, well, we need to cut this off first <laughs> and, I take and cut it off and then try to explain to them a situation when you would use it and how they would use it. I never want to come across as some know-it-all, but it seems like when you strike up these conversations with people who do want to know, because nobody wants to get hurt, nobody wants a helicopter ride out of the park. And so I think genuinely a lot of people are concerned. I mean, with that said, working on those National Geographic programs, and a lot of times it was a situation where it is human-animal conflict, you would approach somebody and say, you're too close. This is the behavior I'm seeing with the jaws popping and just that body language that you really get to know. They don't care. So it's like, okay, we're just going to set up the cameras for the money shot. <laughs> so. We were in the Grand Tetons one year. There was a fellow who wanted to get pictures of a calf elk. Oh. Yes. And we know how moose and elk can be when they have their young. They can oh, yeah. be uh, quite more dangerous than, than having oh, yeah. a bear that might be across the river. So exactly. my dad, we, we were there and we were in the, in the truck and this fellow walked down to oh, where no. the elk were and he started yelling at the mother oh, to get no. rid of her so he could get his picture of this calf. And of course, oh, the, the mother started charging. We did flag down the ranger because luckily he just happened to be driving by and we flagged him down. That guy, he would not, he would not come. I don't know if he find him, but I, I just was shocked that somebody would, would do that. Oh my gosh. And I used to work in Alaska. I used to live in Alaska. Oh. I was on Kodiak Island and I was with the Alaska State Parks and we did I was part of wildlife management. But anyway, there was another island where this fellow who came from the east, eastern United States, to pick blueberries. And you are supposed to get a permit from our office. And he did not. He apparently he never would get a permit. He would go pick his blueberries. And there was a grizzly bear. The mother had two cubs. And the man was picking in the same blueberry area and he got upset at one of the cubs so he bonked the cub on the head with his bucket you don't want to do that <laughs> well you can already guess what happened and luckily there were so many witnesses on the boat that brought him there they saw everything he was killed the mother to not yeah. fight for her cub oh, so yeah. we did not euthanize the bear uh, yeah. But we did have to go retrieve the body of the gentleman. I know. it's And it's sad. We've lost touch a lot with the natural world and where we fit and how we fit. The natural world is very fragile. And we have caused that fragility through ignorance. Mm -hmm. So now with this book, you have pictures of birds, you have the flowers, 
you have the wildlife and people can read it. So can you, Amy, talk a little bit more about the positive imprints and the inspiration of the two books? One mm -hmm. of them is on the found photos of Yellowstone. Correct. And what is that? So that is the brainchild of a friend of mine, Mike Francis, who's a phenomenal photographer. I've known Mike for 30 years now, at least. He has a long history with Yellowstone. He worked there for quite a while back in the 70s. And, and even before then, when he visited, he started collecting postcards and photos. And over 50 years, he has collected photo albums from families who visited or employees. He approached me several years ago and said, can we put together a historical book? So using these photos that nobody has ever seen because they've been in family photo albums. Wow. Because some of the photos we have are from the 1890s. And so we, this one we focused on from 1890 to 1940. And then I worked very closely. I would do my research and write up captions for each and, you know, try to put as many details as possible in each of those captions and then worked with Lee Whittlesey who was the Yellowstone Park historian for, I think, about 40 years. And Lee's a walking encyclopedia of all things Yellowstone. And so he would correct me when I was wrong, because what's interesting is even some of the written literature that's kind of the standard National Park Service wasn't correct. But through all of his research, he knows and goes to those primary sources. So really made sure that everything was accurate and but it was interesting because also looked at even the fashions of the time. When you're trying to pinpoint the year on something, you're looking at the different dress styles and cameras and things like that to try to figure out what year it was or close as we could. And when this book was written and the pictures were out, did the National Park Service correct their literature with some with the incorrect information that they had? No. No, that's that's such a huge machine. <laughs> but, but no, it was it was interesting. So that just came out in September. And actually I have not seen a hard copy yet. <laughs> I oh really? Seen. Well, I believe it's available on Amazon. Uh, found photos of Yellowstone. Look at this front picture. So where are these two gentlemen? And of course, their outfits definitely demonstrate that it is in a different era for sure. They're at the fishing cone thermal feature. So on the West Thumb, that was a huge popular area from the 1871 expedition that went through. It was renowned that you could catch a fish in the lake standing out on that structure and then take your pole over and put it in the thermal feature and cook the fish a lot. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it was hugely popular until the early 1900s, I think it was 1911, maybe, that the Park Service finally said, no, no, for a while it was, you can't cook live fish. So then people would kill the fish and then cook it that way. And then eventually the Park Service, no, no, no more cooking fish in the fishing cone. <laughs> I would think that because of the fact that it is a thermal cone, that that would just be a dangerous place to head I know, over to. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, Not, you want to discourage that. Yes, definitely. And, and we know that Yellowstone is sitting on an extreme volcanic. Mm -hmm. uh, All the volcanic activity and 
Well, it's fascinating. The other one that really caught my attention doing the research, it was a feature called the Devil's Kitchen in the Mammoth area. And that's, you know, off limits now and they don't advertise it. But from the early, early days, they had a ladder that would go down because they said you would feel queer sensations, which is basically poisonous gases. Yes. <laughs> when you went down, that you felt like you were in the underworld. So they called it Devil's Kitchen, and there was a little concession stand, I think, in the 20s or 30s there. Wow. Where you could buy ice cream, you know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, that, it's off limits now. <laughs> wow. That is that is very interesting. So science has allowed the parks to also understand the world, what Mother Nature has within the park with regard to the thermal mm -hmm. that exists and also the volcanic lava that is beneath and cooking and oh, yeah. ready to blow if we ever have that explosion, which would be truly... Uh, the end of the West. <laughs> yeah, it'd be bad. <laughs> it would be very bad. It would yeah. be very bad. Seismologists yes. keep a very close eye on that area. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And how things have changed, you know, and we've, like, there was another one called the Beehive that was in the Old Faithful area. They go through stages where they'll be real active and then they won't for sometimes decades and then bubble back to life and new ones form and, and roads melt. Sometimes the asphalt roads melt up around Mammoth area that's happened in, you know, fire hole. So it's, it's interesting. And what was also fun with that book is researching structures that no longer exist. In the fire hole region, there was one called the Fountain Hotel. It was 300 rooms. It was gorgeous. But after 1917, when cars were regulars and they weren't doing the stagecoaches from place to place, they ended up abandoning it and then tearing it down 10 years later. Or Canyon Hotel, which was, I would oh, I would have loved to have seen it. It was, I believe, a mile the whole way around. It was just massive and gorgeous. But the foundation was faulty. And they were going to tear it down. And like just shortly before they were going to tear it down, it burned. And they have no idea why. They say the grand lady couldn't, basically wouldn't take that insult of being demolished. And she burned. Wow. And when you think about it, when you're saying 1917, that's only 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. So as far as what people can learn from this book on Yellowstone, you talk about the thermal areas. Do you also talk about the dangers of the thermal? Just mentioning sometimes in some of the photos, because there's one in particular that I can think of where a lady is bending over and looking into Old Faithful. <laughs> so wow. she's holding her hat to the side, you know, and they all wore hats back then. She's holding her hat so it doesn't fall in. But so in that respect, it's illegal to get this close now and letting people know. There was another one called Handkerchief Pool, which was as popular as Old Faithful as anything, because you would put a handkerchief or something and it would float and then it would be sucked underneath for a few minutes and then pop out perfectly clean. Whoa. I mean, I mean presidents would go play there and, you know until people kept throwing more things in it oh. and it eventually clogged the system. So does it still exist? 
it's still there, but it's not functioning like it once did. But, Is that I mean, because they, they, of the all of the things that have been put inside of it? I think mostly that, you know, and sometimes, like I said, it is cyclical where things don't, the plumbing doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. So not to say that it won't ever come back, but right. Cause I think they did try to pull a lot of the debris out of it, but wow. I don't think it is functioning anymore. It was all very tourist oriented type thing. It was hugely, hugely popular. I, I hope that people will go out and enjoy nature but also keeping in mind that nature does have her own mind and maybe not mind, but has her own agenda. Yeah. Amy, why is it important for us to preserve and conserve nature? And also why is it so important and imperative for us to enjoy nature? I think it's important for us to enjoy nature and to be, to protect it for the future because it is us. I think that's something that a lot of people have lost sight of maybe on a day-to-day basis, but when you are out, when you're experiencing nature, it really resonates. And I think when more people get out and and sit quietly or go on the trail and are ex- soaking in those sights and sounds, it's like coming home. And I think once people realize that, then it's going to be preserved for the generations. And I firmly believe that's something we have to think about. It's we have to think about seven generations to go, that not just us, not even just our children and grandchildren, but those generations, they need to come home to. It's important for people to be able to get out in nature. One of the things that I love the most here in Great Falls, we homeschool our kids. Our boys are ages 12 and 14. And so years ago, we developed a nature club for the homeschool kids because a lot of times, you know, it's primarily moms who are doing the homeschooling. And a lot of times they're not comfortable going out on their own. And so we want to try to be able to get groups together and do little hikes. Sometimes we go over to Glacier National Park. We've done that. But the whole goal is to give people the confidence to be able to go out on their own and to know how to take care of themselves and their kids, because that's the thing. Anytime you're taking kids into a situation, you want to be extra careful because it's not always their choice where they're going. So as a parent, you have to be very safety conscious, instilling that confidence in both the moms and the kids so they can get out and enjoy it and then hopefully take care of it. Because I think if kids learn to love nature when they're young, that's going to carry through their entire lives. And I think that's important. I do too. I think the exposure makes a big difference when it comes to preservation and conservation for the future. And it's great when you're with kids because they see things that a lot of times we miss. You know, because when I'm hiking, you know, depending where I'm hiking, I might be looking for rattlesnakes. I might be looking for bears. You know, you're scanning, but the kids are going to notice the frog. (laughs) Or they're going to notice the spider or or something cool. And so a lot of times during our hikes, you know, they're very, very slow. (laughs) But you see see some cool stuff. And now that we're learning more about mushrooms, oh, we're never going to get anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's one thing that I never did really learn was, was the mushrooms. It's amazing. You get that little piece of knowledge and you just start building on it. 
It's fun too when you see like squirrel teeth marks on them, you know, because the squirrels can eat even deadly mushrooms, like the amanitas, doesn't hurt them at all. A couple of them will kill us and there's no way to prevent it. But squirrels are fine. So yeah, it's, it's neat. And it's neat to see the connection. That's another thing with the kids that we really try to strive is how the birds and the plants and the mammals, everything's connected. So that's, that's important too, I think. That is a great reminder that everything is connected. Amy, this has been so enlightening, and I so much enjoy hearing about your time in nature, but especially the fact that you are building confidence and instilling the understanding of nature in others so that people will enjoy it and be exposed to nature in positive ways. So I thank you so much for that. And in ending this segment, this part one segment on nature, what are your closing inspiring words? I think just to encourage everybody to get outside. And if they are hesitant at all, start with those baby steps. You know, walking the trail that beckons is just one step after another. That's the best way to look at it. You don't have to look at the entire trail or the entire journey. You just look at putting one foot in front of the other and just going and seeing what you see along the way. So many times when we're hiking or we're out, it's always you're thinking about what's at the end, where the reality is the best part is what's in between that beginning and when you're going to turn around or when you're going to stop. So that's what you remember. You don't always remember the end point. You remember the journey in between. Amy, I just love that. That's what it is. It's, it's the journey in between. The journey in between. Amy Grisak, thank you so much for sharing your positive imprints and everything nature. Thank you. Thank you so much. AmyGrisak.com. A-M-Y-G-R-I-S-A-K. Join us next week for part two with Amy Grisak as she talks about how to do a raised garden. Sustainability. Please provide positive reviews and don't forget to hit that download, subscribe, or follow button now. Your positive imprint. What's your P.I.?